God bless all of you today. Amen. Looking forward to awesome things in the Lord. Amen. Let's all stand. Our God is awesome. He's great and wants to do great things in our midst here today. Praise God. Let's call out to Him today. Lord Jesus, You're an awesome God. We worship You. We praise You. We thank You, Lord, for this opportunity You've given us this morning to enter into the very throne room of God, the very presence of the Almighty. Help us, Lord Jesus, to enter properly, humbly, yet boldly, proclaiming the goodness of God, proclaiming the promises of God, speaking to our individual and corporate needs. We understand through Your Word, Lord Jesus, that it is Your great desire to minister to every need here today. It is Your desire to save, to heal, to restore, to provide. Whatever the need is here today, I pray, Lord, in Jesus' name, that Your will would be manifest here, that Your heart would be accomplished in this place. This is Your service. We are Your people. We submit ourselves under the will and plan of God today. I declare, Lord, in the Spirit that You are altogether sovereign in this place, that You are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. There is no one higher. There is no one greater than You. You are able to do all things. You are able to do all things. You are able to accomplish all things for us. Whatever the need is here today, there are no limitations placed on You. There is nothing that You cannot do. Thank You, Jesus for Your presence in this place. Thank You, Jesus, for Your so great faithfulness to us and to the Word of God, the covenant promises that You've given each of us. I pray, Lord, above all else, that Your name would be glorified and magnified and lifted up and worshipped and praised in this place today. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Hallelujah, Jesus. Praise God, praise God. What an awesome God we serve, folks. What an opportunity we have today to receive of Him. Praise God. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for standing. You can be seated. Our youth can be dismissed at this time. Amen. By way of review, last week we spoke about the Beatitudes. Attitudes that you ought to be. God loves to bless and to fill those that are empty. That emptiness can take a couple different forms. Empty because the world has taken everything from them. And folks, those that are in the world are altogether empty. They have nothing of value. They may think they have everything. They may think that they are rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. But they have no idea that they are wretched and poor and miserable and blind and naked. They have nothing. They're empty. We could be empty because we have emptied ourselves of worldliness and everything that displeases God and we desire better things from God. In any case, our emptiness needs to be filled. And Jesus desires to fill that. Those whom Jesus ministered to and associated with most were those who were empty and knew it. Luke 5, 30-32 states this, But their scribes and Pharisees murmured against His disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with publicans and sinners? Jesus answering said unto them, They that are whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Have you ever 
prepared a, a wonderful meal. Just a tasty, great-smelling, great-tasting meal. And try to feed it to someone who is stuffed full. They don't want it. They don't care how good it smells. I can't eat another bite. I'm stuffed. Have you ever tried to minister to someone who has no need? They have a need. You know they have a need. But they they don't see it. They don't realize it. It's the same thing. It's difficult to minister to someone that will not recognize their need. But when they do recognize that they have need of a Savior, when they do finally come to themselves and understand, I need God, they're ready to eat. And yet God blesses the full also when we're filled with the right things. Filled with mercy, purity, peace. Things, of course, that can come only from God. There is no peace in this world. There is no love, no joy in this world. These things only come from the, the Holy Ghost. They are a fruit of the Spirit. They only come from God. And nothing can take it away. God will not take away His peace, His joy, His love. This world is not powerful enough. The enemy is not powerful enough. I am not powerful enough to take that away from you. The only way you can lose it is if you give it away. And the only way you're going to give it away is because you've listened to the wrong voice. You've listened to the voice of discouragement or depression. You've listened to the voice of fear or doubt. You need to listen to the voice of God. You need to listen to the voice of the Word of God. You'll never lose joy. I don't care what you're going through. You'll never lose peace. I don't care what circumstance you face. It can't be taken away. God blesses those also who are persecuted. Not for any particular reason, but for righteousness' sake, for God's sake. Persecution for these reasons, we we read, we learned, puts us in pretty good company. We know that the Old Testament prophets were persecuted for righteousness' sake. The New Testament apostles were persecuted. Jesus Himself was persecuted because of what He stood for, what He preached and taught. We're at war, folks, and we cannot be neutral in this war. There are two and only two sides to take. You are for Jesus or you're against Jesus. You are for the world or you're against the world. You can only serve one master. I know there are many Christians today who like to kind of double dip every once in a while. Kind of ride the fence. Stay in the world a little bit, but keep up Christian pretenses. I, want, I kind of want both. You can't have both. You're going to choose one. The fence is very narrow and you're going to fall to one side or the other. So make up your mind. Make a choice. And go with that. Like the rain that provides so many different needs to those who have need of it, God provides our needs in every season we find ourselves in. Whether we're on the mountaintop or whether we're in the deepest valley, in the bright of day or in the darkest night, we can find the Lord Jesus Christ walking right beside us, ministering to whatever need we have at the moment. He's right there. He provides our needs in every season of life we find ourselves in. 
And we do have to go through seasons in life, folks. I know not every season is nice. We were just talking before prayer about winter's coming. God bless winter time, huh? Eight feet of snow, 30 below. No one will be complaining about the heat then. That's right. You guys, you guys that like it cold, God bless you. Here it comes. <laughs> I used to love winter as a kid. I don't love winter as much as I did before. If I ever went sledding again, it would hurt. Um, the way I did it when I was a kid, it would hurt a lot. <laughs> but uh, we got winter seasons in life. But we've got to get through winter to get to spring, don't we? Amen. Winter is important too. Winter is just as important. Our daily devotions. They never, they never cease to amaze me. I'm loving these daily devotions. Day one, the poor in spirit recognize their lack of resources and their need for God. They understand that they have lack They can't take care of certain things. They don't have the resources. They don't have the skills, the talents, the abilities. And yet Jesus states that God's kingdom belongs to such as these. The devotion ends with a powerful story of forgiveness and peace that can only come from God. Day 2. Number 6, 24-26. This is the priestly blessing that we read about in the Old Testament. It states this, The Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make His face to shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. The Lord lift up His countenance upon thee and give thee peace. This is the the blessing the priest would give to the congregation. Jesus continually proclaims blessings in the Sermon on the Mount as our high priest. Our great high priest pronounces blessings upon us. The devotion ends with an example that God can answer our prayers by many different means. Even by a means that you didn't even consider. Didn't even see. Is it possible that some prayers that we've prayed in our lives were answered? We just didn't see the answer. We didn't recognize it when it came. Day 3. Matthew 5, five says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. This isn't a new saying. They've heard this saying many times before. Psalm 37.11 says, The meek shall inherit the earth and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. Jesus' teaching on meekness was not something new. In ancient Greece, I thought this was fascinating, in ancient Greece, war horses were referred to as meeked horses. The Greek understanding of the word meek was strength under control. Strength under control. Great strength and power submitted to the will of another. Now we understand that's referring to us submitting ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ. We got half of it down. We do need to submit ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ. But that first part, great strength and power. We have a problem with that sometimes. I don't have any strength. I don't have any power. Well, not of yourself, no. But through the Lord, you are, you are mighty. You are strong in battle. You are strong to, to be victorious. Strong over sin and over all the power of the enemy. Through Christ, you have power and authority over circumstance and situation. You are strong. You are mighty. You are powerful through Him. 
And we are to submit that power and that strength and that authority to the will of God. You are strong, sir. You are mighty, ma'am, in God. The strongest we will ever be is when we are fully submitted to God. That's truth right there. Day four, there is a connection between peace and righteousness. James 3.18 says, And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. We sow in peace to reap a harvest of righteousness. The truth that Jesus and James came to tell us is that we must be peacemakers to be righteous. And another exhortation uh, is left with us that to receive mercy, we must first give mercy. Day five, if you continually exhibit the fruit of the Spirit, the law will never kick in. Isn't that fascinating? If you could simply, through strength of will alone, fulfill the fruit of the Spirit, demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit every day, you wouldn't need a Savior. The law would never kick in. The law would never apply to you. That's what Jesus did. The law never kicked in for Him. The law kicked in for all of us a long time ago. We need a Savior. Revolutionary War Story. I thought this was interesting. Don't allow yourself to be distracted while there's a war to win. Now, I would never uh, endorse gambling or drinking uh, like the story was, was doing, but, but the man could have at least, when he received the note, said, gentlemen, game's over. I got a job to do. This is more important. But he didn't. He just put the note in his pocket and kept playing. There were reasons for that. Arrogance, pride, ego, all of that stuff. But folks, we got a war to win. And there's nothing wrong with entertainment from time to time. Good, wholesome entertainment. There's nothing wrong with engaging in a hobby. Playing a game with a friend. Nothing wrong with that. You're playing with me. Yeah. <clears throat> Another time. But when, but when it's time to go to work, it's time to go to work, folks. When the enemy comes knocking, when, when we get a note from the Lord saying, we've got to move, we've got to do this, we've got to go here. Game's over then. Entertainment, we've got we to shut that off. We've got to put the game away. Jesus is calling us to action now. There are things more important than the entertainment, than the hobby, than the game with a friend. And we need to take care of those things first. Don't be distracted by those things. There are more important things going on. 1 Peter 5 and 8 says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil is a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Be vigilant, folks. Be on the lookout. Be wary. Be alert. The enemy can sneak up on you. In the military, they say, watch your six. That's good advice. Because that's where he's going to be lurking. Six o'clock. <laughs> You're behind, yep. <laughs> All right. Our lesson for today, our scripture text is found in Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. 
We're also going to read 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. Matthew 5, 13 through 16, and 2 Thessalonians 1, 11 and 12. We're continuing along with the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, starting with verse 13, states this, Ye are the salt of the earth, but if the salt have lost his savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It ascends forth good for nothing but to be cast out, and to be trodden under foot of men. Ye are the light of the world, a city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick. And it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works, and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Not, interestingly enough, you, but your Father which is in heaven. Also, Second Thessalonians 1, 11 and 12. Wherefore, also we pray always for you that our God would count you worthy of this calling, or make you worthy of this calling, and fulfill all the good pleasure of His goodness and the work of faith with power, that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you, and ye in Him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We're talking today on the mission of a disciple. The mission of a disciple. Being called to be a witness in a court of law may be an anxiety-filled process. Witnesses are often called to testify in court for important reasons. When a witness is called forward, attorneys believe their witness's word can help make or break the case. The defendant is hoping to be saved by the witness. The plaintiff is hoping the witness will bring a conviction. The process seems ceremonious and procedural. The witness must show up in the courtroom at the appropriate time, preferably dressed in a respectable manner. The witness must place one hand on the Bible. I believe that's kind of going away now, but it used to be that way. And swear to tell the whole truth, the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help you God. Then the questions often come in rapid-fire succession. The witness tries to carefully remember all the details, knowing every word spoken will be analyzed. Even the witness's mannerisms will be critiqued. Was she nervous? Why did she say what she said and not something else? What about what the witness did not say? Was anything omitted or avoided? The witness might sit in her chair with her mind racing, realizing her words might forever change someone's life. While being a witness for God should not produce the same level of anxiety, I hope it doesn't, it should be treated with the same level of seriousness, however. We can quickly see many similarities to faith. Just as in a courtroom, a witness for God is expected to act and dress a certain way. If not, his character could be called into question. A good witness must have an answer ready. Amen. It would be foolhardy for him to arrive unprepared. You don't go to the courtroom, in other words, and just whatever questions they answer, ask, that's what I'll answer. No, the witness is always prepped beforehand. These are the questions you can expect to get. These are the answers that you should get. We need to prepare to answer those kinds of questions. And that's what we need to do as Christians as well. Furthermore, the witness must... I'm sorry, the witness must be just as careful about what he says as what he does not say. Furthermore, what the witness does not say is almost as important as what he does say. A good witness does not add to or take away from the truth. However, a major difference between God's witness and most courtroom witnesses is the empowerment that comes with the infilling of God's Spirit. 
Jesus Himself prophesied, but ye shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto Me. Acts 1.8 Christians do not need to be anxious about being witnesses because we know God has already granted every Spirit-filled believer the power necessary to be an effective witness. And before we continue with the lesson, I do want to state that we should not be anxious about being used of God in any capacity, let alone being a witness for Him. We should be actually excited about it. Anxious in the fact that I want to be used in that capacity. I want God to to speak through me into the life of someone else. Someone asks me a question. I'm looking forward to God giving them an answer through me. We should be excited about being used by God. Because, folks, it's not up to us anyway. We do everything that we can. Yes, we need to study to show ourselves approved. We need to have a ready answer for those that ask us of the hope that is in us. Amen. We do have responsibilities here. But at the end of the day, folks, at the end of the day, it's Jesus that leads to a place of repentance. It's Jesus that fills someone with the gift of the Holy Ghost. All we can do is make them aware of the need. And even then, it's God revealing truth to them through us. But we've got to be there. We've got to be present. We've got to be prepared. We've got to take our gifts and callings seriously. Amen. Jesus often used analogies that helped His listeners better understand His teachings. Most would have had great difficulty trying to understand a scholarly theological textbook in Jesus' day. Can you imagine the fishermen coming to the the school of Gamaliel, final year, listening to one of his messages, listening to one of his lessons? I can imagine it. I think most of it would have went over the fishermen's head. Jesus understood all of that. Jesus created all of that. Jesus wrote the laws, the rules. He did. He's the originator of all of these theological truths. But when He presents it to people, He presents it in a manner that they can understand. He presents it in a manner that... I mean, it's true that you can go as deep into this as you want to. You can go so deep into this that that your mind is completely blown. You're going to have difficulty understanding some of the concepts that God lays out here. I do. And yet, it is so simple that a child can receive it and understand it and walk with it related to someone else. Amen. Although the common person of Jesus' day might have had difficulty understanding the rabbi's theological textbook, they would have all understood the value of salt. And they would have all understood the effectiveness of light. Matthew 5.13 says, Ye are the salt of the earth, but if the salt have lost his savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden under foot of men. If you've ever cooked a meal in your life, if you've ever served a meal to someone else in your life, then you have invariably heard someone say, this needs a little more salt. Has anyone ever told you that? They tell me that all the time. Because I don't need a lot of salt in mine. 
but some people do. Always needs a little bit more salt, especially when I'm making mac and cheese for the kids. They want that thing salted down. They want a cake layer of salt on that thing. I just like, you go. You enjoy that. My brother, too. (laughs) Anyway, uh, salt does two things. Salt preserves. And salt enhances flavor or it influences the flavor of the food that you're salting. Salt preserves by making the environment too dry for harmful mold and bacteria to live. And so when you have salt pork, for example, that is some salty pork, by the way. However, it stays preserved at room temperature. You can put it in a barrel, and it's good. I don't know how good it is to eat, but it's not spoiled. It's edible. We are to preserve a couple things. We are to preserve the Word of God. 1 Peter 3.15 says, Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, or set apart God as Lord in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you, with meekness and fear. Again, we need to have a ready answer. When someone asks us, well, what does this Scripture mean? What is God saying here? Doesn't He mean this instead? We can give them a ready answer. We have an answer prepared. There are only so many questions that sinners ask. There are really only so many questions that they ask. And once you nail those down, it's pretty easy. But every once in a while, you'll get thrown a curveball. You'll get thrown something that you've never heard of or considered before. And that's okay. Let God give him an answer. The answer might be, that's a great question. Let me get back to you on that. I hadn't thought about that before. I've had to answer that way a lot. But we need to be comfortable with the Word of God. We need to know what the Word of God says. We need to know what the will of God is for someone's life. We need to know the plan of salvation. How to explain the plan of salvation. We need to know these things and be comfortable teaching these things to others. Which brings us to the next point. We need to be apt to teach. First and Second Timothy, we read in several places. You need to be apt to teach. Teach what? The Word of God. <clears throat> we need to teach the Word of God. If we understand it, then we need to take the next step and teach it to someone else so that they understand it. The second thing we are to preserve, uh, we are to halt corruption and moral decay in this world. Our presence, our prayers, our actions in this world ought to be a preserving influence. Those around us ought to understand that I don't speak like that. I don't do those things. There's conviction that ensues when someone is around a child of God. They'll play it off. They'll mock it. They'll do whatever they need to do to get rid of the conviction feeling. But it's there nonetheless. This world is not as far gone as it should be because of the influence of the church. God helped the world 
after the rapture. God help this world and those left in it after God removes His church from this, from this world. Because God's church is the only preserving influence the world has. Jesus talks about losing our savor or losing our saltiness. I'm going to quote a man by the name of Thompson in a book, Land Land in the Book. It's an old book written in 1887, but he says this, quote, It is a well-known fact that the salt of this country, i.e. Palestine, when in contact with the ground or exposed to rain and sun, does become insipid or bland without distinctive qualities and useless. From the manner in which it is gathered, much earth and other impurities are necessarily collected with it. Not a little of it is so impure that it cannot be used at all. And such salt soon effloresces. I mean, to change either throughout or on the surface to a mealy or powdery substance upon exposure to air. And turns to dust, not to fruitful soil, however. It is not only good for nothing itself, but it actually destroys all fertility whenever, wherever it is thrown. No man will allow it to be thrown onto his field, and the only place for it is the street, and there it is cast to be trodden underfoot of men. Unquote. If we lose our saltiness, what will take its place? What takes the place of salt? We have salt substitutes, don't we? Sodium chloride is the real deal, but we also have potassium chloride. Fake salt. Salt substitute. Salt substitutes get it close, but they can't quite replicate the distinctive qualities of real salt. No one is exactly 100% sure how the human being detects saltiness. Obviously, it's something in the tongue, sending signals to the brain, but, but we're not exactly sure what the process is. In any case, salt replacements, they can work sometimes in small amounts, but if you get too much, you're definitely going to tell the difference. People can tell if you're fake salt or real. They can taste the difference. If you make peace with the world to avoid persecution and hardship, you will be rendered impotent and unable to affect the world around you for Jesus Christ. And that's what we were saying earlier. Get off the fence. Make a choice. If you're going to serve Jesus, then serve Him with all of your heart. This is, you know, Christianity is... I think we've said this before. Christianity is not just one more thing I'm adding to an already busy life. This is my life. This is who I am now. Everything else in my life revolves around this. If I'm going to dedicate one area of my life to Jesus Christ, I need to dedicate all of it. It's all or nothing. I'm not holding anything back. I do church on Wednesdays and Sundays, but then I'm also at work and I act this way at work. And when I'm with my family, I'm this guy with my family. We all know or have known people like that. But that ought not be us. That ought not be the child of God. I have dedicated myself to serving Jesus Christ in every area of my life. All of me is serving Jesus Christ. My whole life 
is dedicated to that one task. Everything else in my life is touched by my Christianity now. It's affected by my relationship with God now. That doesn't affect my relationship with God. My relationship with God affects that. I'm a Christian through and through. All or nothing. And that's the way it's got to be. I cannot make peace with the world and still serve Jesus Christ. Conversely, I cannot make peace with Jesus Christ and still serve the world. It's one or the other. I'm salt or I'm not. I'm salty or I'm not salty. You can't be kind of salt. You can't be a little bit salt. It's all or nothing, folks. You're salty or you're not. Be salt. Matthew 5.14 says, You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Jesus now switches from the analogy of salt to that of a city on the hill. Now, back in the day, before GPS, turn-by-turn instructions, we used to have these things. I think everyone here knows that. There are no kids here. These fold-up maps that only a master could get refolded. I think I did it one time. I was able to fold it up one time. I remember it. I remember it distinctly. I was so proud of myself. But you'd have to look at these maps. And if you didn't have a map, well, you'd look for a landmark. Something that you knew. Down south, I suppose it's the same rural areas up north too, but I don't know why I always think of south when I think of this. You try to get instructions to a certain individual's place, and they'll be like, oh, yeah, that's easy. You just go down this road about five miles or... 15, 20 miles or something. Anyway, until you get to the old cratered out lightning struck tree. You'll see it. You can't miss it. Then you take a left there. Go down a few miles and uh, Ma's Bakery is off on the right. You'll smell the, you'll smell the apple pie. Uh, you can't miss it. Once you get there, you know you've got two more miles to go and then you take a right. Etc., etc. And they're naming off these different landmarks that everybody knows about. You know, except you. You've never been here before. You don't know any of these things. But they should be easy enough to find. In Denver, Colorado, the mountains are always to the west. The flatlands are always to the east. So in that area of the country, you can get oriented very easily. You always know, even on a cloudy day, that's west. Those are the mountains over there. That makes it easy to get oriented. When people are lost... They begin looking for solid landmarks. If you get lost on a hiking trail, for example, you're looking for familiar landmarks, familiar things that, okay, I know where that is. So, okay, so i got to go this way. And you're good. When people are lost, they begin to look for solid landmarks. We should stand out as a landmark for others to see and to get themselves spiritually oriented to. Amen. When people are lost, they're looking for a landmark, something solid to orient themselves to. That's you. That's me. 
Matthew 5.15 says, Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Three times in the book of John, Jesus refers to himself as the light of the world. John 8.12, John 9.5, John 12.46. 8.12 says this, Then spake Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. The world is in spiritual darkness. And we are the lights that illuminate through that darkness. We have got to shine brightly. And the darker the night, the brighter the light. Now the world will say that we are in the darkness of ignorance. And we need to be delivered from religious oppression and and spiritual ignorance. Come into the light of scientific truth. That's what they'll say. Men can discover aspects of truth in darkness by groping around, feeling around. But most truth, most spiritual truth must be revealed. If we covered the windows, turned off all the lights, made everything pitch black in here. Have you ever been in a cave? where they turn the lights off and it's completely black. You can't see anything. That's what they're living in, folks. And they're groping around and they think they they know some things and they probably do. I can tell that this is solid. I can tell it's pretty smooth. I can't tell what it is. I can't see anything. I can tell it's pretty heavy, pretty massive. But I don't know what it is. I mean, if I, if I just felt around, I couldn't tell what this thing is. But I could tell a couple things about it. But until the light is turned on, that will not be revealed to me. When the light is turned on, folks, all kinds of things are revealed. The fullness of truth can only be discerned when illuminated by the Holy Ghost. Matthew 5.16 says, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Light is meant to be seen, to shine forth, to make itself known. We let our light shine by our good actions, by demonstrating Jesus. And when we demonstrate Jesus... He gets the glory, not us. He ought to get the glory because it's not us. And those, anyone that knows us will understand that. Jesus is doing something through that individual. I don't understand it, but it's awesome. And I know there's no way that He could do that. It's got to be God. That's what I want to see in my life. That's what I want to see in your, your guys' life. Just something so crazy and stupendous. It can't possibly be you. It couldn't possibly be me. It's got to be God. And He gets the glory. And He keeps doing great things. What an awesome thing that would be. God must be present in every aspect of our lives. Okay, I guess i got ahead of myself again. For us to be an effective witness, the Christian faith must permeate the witness's entire life to be effective. 
It says, and simply one more component of our already busy schedule, this is the schedule. Romans 12.1 says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. In the Old Testament, there is nothing more total, nothing more final, nothing more complete than the animal sacrifice. Like that old farm story, sitting down to a breakfast of ham and eggs. The chicken was dedicated, but the pig was committed. (laughs) And nothing more final than animal sacrifice. The bowl of the seat was slaughtered and burned. Its entire body was offered as worship to God. You don't come back from that. It's done. Have we done that with ourselves spiritually on an altar of sacrifice? Have we given all of us to Jesus Christ? Have we laid ourselves as a burnt offering? Total, final, complete. Or have we held back a part? Is there a part that we've kept to ourselves? Our roles as a witness. Witnesses tell the account of their experiences. Right? You get called on the witness stand, they're just asking you, what did you see? What did you experience? Being a witness for Jesus Christ is more than something we do on a Saturday morning. It's part of our spiritual genetic makeup. I've been involved with churches and and outreach departments and et cetera, et cetera, and we go door knocking on Saturday morning and and pass out tracts and stuff like that. Nothing wrong with that. I mean, everything right with that. But that cannot be the extent of our personal evangelism. Lifestyle evangelism is really what we're after. Standing in the line at the grocery market, someone strikes up a conversation. Sitting at work, Brother Shepherd, Or standing at work. <laughs> Moving around at work. <clears throat> Someone asks a question. Someone says something. It prompts a response. That ought to be part of our genetic makeup. When we're born again of water and of spirit. We are new creatures. I wouldn't have wanted to do that before. There is no way I would have wanted to talk to a stranger before. My personal philosophy was live and let live. You do you and I'll do me, and I'm fine with that. I don't care what you do. Just don't bring it over here. And I'm not going to bring my stuff over to you. Great. We're going to get along swimmingly. But I can't live like that anymore. I can't be like that anymore. There's something inside of me now that wants other people to know what I have, what I have experienced the great things that God has done for me. As a witness, I don't have to have a great big theological Ph.D. degree. I don't need to know, you know, eschatology and and epistemology and all of those things. All I need to be able to do is, what did Jesus do for you? What did Jesus do in your life that makes you act like this? I can do that easy. I don't have to make up anything. I was there. 
I know what He did for me. I felt what He did for me. I experienced what He did for me. And it's easy to share that with someone else. Now, they can take it and do whatever they want with it. But I'm telling them the truth. This is what Jesus did for me. And this is what Jesus wants to do for you. That's easy. We witness through evangelism, through inward and outward holiness, and through the very image of God manifested in our daily lives. These three things. The first, the witness of evangelism, which is part of the Great Commission. Matthew 28, 19 says, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. We cannot fulfill these commands without first going. Go ye therefore. Go where? Wherever they're at. And you don't even need to purpose in your hearts to do that. You're going to meet people just taking care of normal business. You're going to meet people doing your job at work. I got an awesome testimony about work. I'll share that next service. But we can't fulfill that without first going. Being a witness is active and intentional. It's not a passive activity. We're looking for doors of opportunity. We're looking for... uh, Doors of opportunity. I have tried in the past to create doors of opportunity. And they never worked for me. I don't know if they've worked for you. But they have failed miserably for me. So now what I do is I pray. Open a door of opportunity. And when someone comes to me, that's a much more powerful position to be in. And then I've got that door. And I'll step through that. Answer the question. Speak to the individual about whatever it is. But it's active. It's intentional. Be a witness. Being a witness, of course, means I must be apt and willing to teach. Someone asked a question about the Word of God. What does this mean? Well, who is supposed to tell them what that means? Oprah? Joel Olstein? No. You're supposed to tell them. God sent them to you. God sent Paul to Ananias. Why? Couldn't God have just taken care of it? Yeah, He could have. But He sent Paul to Ananias instead. Paul, you're going to go to this man and he's going to tell you what you need to do. God sent someone to you so that you can tell them what they need to do. So tell them. Tell them with love and compassion. But tell them with boldness. Tell them fearlessly. They need to hear it. It's always on. It's a lifestyle evangelism. This is who I am. This is what I do. It's a part of me now. The second way we witness is the witness of separation. We must be insulated but not isolated from the world. Okay? Some people get in their mind separation... I need to go up into an ivory tower. I need to become a hermit or a monk and just pray. Nothing wrong with prayer. We need to pray, but we can't go into the ivory tower either. Well, we must exercise wisdom in where we go. For example, I wouldn't recommend hanging out at the nightclub, passing out tracts, or trying to get a Bible study. Uh, There are other Scripture verses to apply here. Don't let your good be evil spoken of etc. 
We need to exercise wisdom in where we go and what we do. A witness cannot remain quarantined from the world and expect to be a faithful witness. John 17, 15 through 18, the high priestly prayer of Jesus says, I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but that thou shouldest keep them from the evil. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. As thou hast sent me into the world, even so I also sent them into the world. We are in the world, but not of the world. Amen. We understand this world is not our home. We're just a passing through. Our home is waiting for us in glory. That's our home, folks. We're pilgrims. We're sojourners. We're wayfarers in this fearful, fallen place. But we are to influence this place for Jesus Christ. And to do that, we have got to walk among them. We cannot participate in their activities. We cannot speak like they do, think like they do, act like they do. But we must influence them for Jesus Christ. Someone influenced you. Someone influenced me for Jesus Christ. We remain in the world primarily to be a witness for those who are yet of the world. I've heard people say this and I kind of agree. Sometimes I think it would have been really nice for God if He struck me dead as soon as I got the Holy Ghost. Wouldn't that have been nice? Retention rate's 100% around here. (laughs) How awesome is that? No one backslides around here. But God keeps us here. We're here for a reason. Because there are other people that need to come into the kingdom of God as well. We must be sanctified, separated in many areas of our lives. And not simply just in the way we dress. Although that too. Our emotions need to be sanctified. Be ye angry and sin not. Don't get angry over frivolous things. I always use the example of being cut off in traffic. There are many other areas that that can affect Christians negatively. Our emotions need to be sanctified. Our speech, even our thoughts, must be set apart for Jesus Christ. Bringing every thought into captivity, into subjection to Christ. Everything, every part of us, every aspect of our lives must be set apart to Jesus Christ. Yes, that includes the way we dress. That, it's not just that. It's everything. The third aspect of our witness is the witness of incarnation. 2 Thessalonians 1.12, we read earlier, says this, that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and ye in Him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is glorified in our lives when we are made more like Him. As we become Christ-like, as we become more like He is, in our thoughts, in our speech, in our decisions, our actions, every aspect of our lives, He receives the glory for that. He is glorified in that. One more reason to want to be Christ-like is it gives God glory. We must allow God to work in us through the power of the Holy Ghost to transform us into His likeness. 
He provides the power and the ability, but we must cooperate with God in this process. There's two sides to this. God's side and our side. God certainly has the desire to make you Christ-like. God certainly has the ability to make you Christ-like. All He needs now is your permission. And we can get this thing rolling. All He needs is my permission. And we can get this thing started. But without that permission, I can say yes and do no. Right? I can say yes with the words of my lips. But with my actions, tell Him no. I need to say and do yes. I need to cooperate with the work of the Holy Ghost inside of me so that God can transform me and make me like He is. I must be Christ-like. Mark 16.20 says, They went forth and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word with signs following. Amen. We've heard that preached once or twice. The image of Christ should be daily manifested in our lives through demonstration of His power and authority. I will continue to preach and teach that. And now I've got confirmation. The writers of this lesson say the same thing. We should expect the supernatural to follow us just as it followed Jesus, just as it followed His disciples. We should expect it. We should expect it. It should be happening. It should be happening regularly. As we partner with Jesus Christ, affecting change in this world, witnessing, being a witness to His power, a testament to His saving grace, as we are going about doing the, the work that He's called us to do, we're partnering with Him. We're not doing this by ourselves. We're not relying on our own abilities, our own intellect, our own strength, our own power. We are relying on His abilities, His strength, His power, His authority. We just have to go and be present. Think of it as... Oh, that's a good analogy. Oh, that's a cool one. Think of it as uh, a missile strike. A laser-guided missile strike. Someone paints the target. That's what they call it. They paint it with a laser beam. And that signals the, the missile to come in and strike. Wherever that laser is, is hitting. Think of yourselves as the laser. God sends you somewhere to paint the target. And that's all we need to do. Then the power and the authority of God manifest themselves through you. That's the missile strike. The laser doesn't have any power to destroy. The missiles do. God sends you into a situation. God sends you to talk to someone. To meet someone. He's painting the target. And through you, that missile strike is coming. 
whatever, whatever the situation requires. The power and the authority of God is going to become manifest in that situation because you're there. If the laser doesn't paint the target, the missiles never come. You've got to be there first. Then the missiles come. Then the power of God is manifest. Amen. In every aspect of our lives, we must demonstrate God's glory. God is to be glorified in every, every aspect of our lives. Now certainly, we enjoy coming to to church service, worship service, and worshiping God. God is glorified in our worship. Absolutely. But we can worship God in many other ways. We can glorify God in many other ways. I can glorify Him with my finances. With my tithes and offerings, for sure. We understand that. But I can glorify Him with my finances in other ways. I can give to missions. I can, I can buy someone a meal. I can help someone else out that needs help. How about my leisure time? Am I giving God glory in my leisure time? We all, I think we all need some leisure time from time to time. Hopefully it doesn't consume you and that's the focus of your life. But it's alright every once in a while to wind down. Sit by the fire and read a good book. Take a walk. Whatever it is you do on your leisure time. Nothing wrong with that. But I can glorify God in that as well. Do I glorify God driving to work in the morning? Driving in traffic? Do my emotions glorify God? Men's primary concern is anger. I think a lot of men deal with anger for one reason or another. Can I glorify God in my emotions? What's the proverb? He that can manage his emotions is greater than he that takes a city. can't remember how it goes specifically. But it demonstrates great strength, great spiritual strength, if you're in charge of your emotions and your emotions don't rule over you. God is still working in us, folks. We understand that. To perfect us. None of us are perfect. None of us have arrived yet. God is still working in us to make us so. To make us Christ-like. But allow Him to continue the process in you. If you don't glorify God in one area of your life, repent. Ask God to forgive you. Ask God to give you strength to, to make it right the next time. What we don't really want to do is make the same mistake over and over and over again. It would be really nice if we could learn from our mistakes and, and move on so that we can get to the next mistake. Amen. And you can work on that instead of the same one over and over again. Amen. But let Him continue that process in you. It glorifies Him when you do. In conclusion, part of being a good witness in a courtroom is seen in the attitude and demeanor of the witness. A flippant witness will not be taken seriously, but an arrogant witness will lose credibility. A witness who only pleads the Fifth Amendment and refuses to speak will be seen as useless. 
The words of the witness will not be viewed in a vacuum, as if they were words on a page. The witness's lifestyle will be just as relevant as his words, and his mannerisms could cause even a true testimony to be rejected. <clears throat> An example of a true witness with a bad lifestyle was the demon-possessed woman who followed Paul and Silas as they witnessed in Philippi. The woman, described as a soothsayer or a fortune teller, followed them around screaming, These men are the servants of the Most High God, which show unto us the way of salvation. Found in Acts 16:17. Interestingly, the words of this witness were true. Even though she was possessed by demons, she told the truth about Paul and Silas. In this instance, Paul would not have agreed with the modern marketing adage that all publicity is good publicity. While Paul tolerated her antics for a few days, he must have been concerned that a woman filled with demons was her biggest source of advertisement in Philippi. Acts 16.18 records that Paul became grieved, or greatly annoyed, and cast the demons out of her. Even though her words were true, her lifestyle was not consistent with the message and promise of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We must be very careful not to be guilty of speaking the correct words, but living in correct lifestyles. The Pharisees were also guilty of this habit. Jesus warned his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. All therefore whatsoever they bid you observe, that observe and do. But do not ye after their works. For they say, and do not. Matthew 23, 2 and 3. The Pharisees spoke one thing but lived another. Simply stated, they were hypocrites. Many such a con- condemn. Many such a condemning statement never be said of our lives or our churches. A great tragedy in living for God is the near miss in which someone has all the correct information and knowledge about God, but does not translate it into daily living. Just knowing is not enough. We must be the salt and light God intended. Amen. Just knowing the Word of God is not enough. We must be doers and not hearers only, deceiving our own selves. Amen. When we are hearers and doers, God will work through us wondrously to effect change in our lives and in the lives of those around us. Amen. Let's all stand. Lord Jesus, you're an awesome God. I worship you. I praise you. I thank you, Lord, that you have made provision for us. Where at one point we were sinners. Now we are children of the Most High God, and it is your desire that we be like you in every aspect of our lives, that we think like you, we speak like you, we act like you, we make our decisions like you would. We see people as you see them, we feel about them as you feel. Hallelujah, Jesus. I pray, God, for each person within the sound of my voice that you would either start or that you would continue that process of making us Christ-like according to the individual's uh, point in you. I pray, Lord, above all else, that your great name would be glorified in the remainder of our service, that your perfect will would continue to be accomplished. These things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for your kind attention. I will take an abbreviated uh, break and be back at a quarter.